0: Hello. Thank you all for being here with us today. My name is Jeffrey Raskin, and I am a pediatric neurosurgeon at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital and assistant professor in the Department of Neurological Surgery at Feinberg School of Medicine in Northwestern University. This podcast is one of three in a series, and this one will explore modifying the perception of pain, cognitive behavioral therapy to psychosurgery. An open and interactive webinar will then be moderated by faculty from all three podcasts where we can broadly discuss the combined topics. This is a jointly funded and conceptualized project from the education committees of the North American Neuromodulation Society and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. I'm here today with Dr. Alicia Morrison and Dr. Shaber Danish. Dr. Morrison is an assistant professor of psychology, research scholar with the Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery and director of education at the Mayo Clinic Pain Rehabilitation Center. Dr. Danish is professor and chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at Hackensack Meridian Health. Dr. Morrison and Dr. Danish, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks. My pleasure. I think as always, we should start with uh, an agreed-upon definition of pain, and uh, many times people refer to the International Association for the Study of Pain definition, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Is this something we can all agree on?
1: Uh, Sure. It's a good place to start.
0: (laughs) All right. I agree. I think this was recently revised in 2020 and and included uh, the addition of emotional experience, which uh, sometimes has been left out and is, of course, extremely important. And I hope we talk a lot about the um, affective component of pain today. Uh, Everyone remembers that there are four major processes which define uh, pain, including transduction, transmission, neuromodulation and perception. And this podcast is really aimed at uh, your expert understanding of the perception of pain and how to uh, modify that. And Dr. Morrison, uh, as a uh, clinical psychologist, um, I think it's reasonable to start with you and your understanding uh, of chronic pain, catastrophizing, and the use of cognitive behavioral therapy can you explain to our audience how you um, come across patients and work them up and apply cognitive behavioral therapy to affect these patients?
2: Absolutely. So in the context of our clinic, our focus is on um, rehabilitation of chronic pain. Um, so we see individuals who um, meet criteria for a high impact chronic pain. So um, those who have experienced pain for at least a three-month period um, and uh, demonstrate that that pain is uh, also disruptive to their day-to-day functioning. Um, So our, our role in pain rehab is to not focus on symptom abatement or alleviation, but rather to enhance functioning. So programs like ours are very much focused on functional restoration, in that we are helping individuals to identify what are the ways in which chronic pain has negatively impacted various aspects of of their their, um, daily functioning, and what are the functional goals that they have for enhancing their functioning. And I should mention, too, that rehabilitative um, care is very interdisciplinary. So we are working with um, pain psychologists, other mental health um, professionals as part of our team, occupational therapy, physical therapy, nursing, uh, pharmacy, um, um, and and some other disciplines. Um, we have uh, a chaplain who works with with our group, a dietitian who works with our group as well. Um, so the the idea is really to take a holistic approach to enhancing patients' functioning.
0: But notably not neurosurgery. did you do you work closely with neurosurgery in in these uh, chronic pain groups or no?
2: No, we do not. So by the time patients um, get to um, our program or programs like ours, they have completed um, the more interventional biomedical um, aspects of of pain management. Um, So in a lot of cases, they've exhausted the medications, surgeries, other procedures, um, and what patients will often um, report is that they continue to experience a disruption in their functioning, and then they are referred to pain rehab. Um, essentially, our role is to help patients to, um, like I said, not um, reduce or um, or uh, alleviate the pain, but rather to um Enhance functioning in the context of ongoing pain, but I'm sure we will also talk about the ways in which uh, cognitive changes and behavioral changes actually influence pain neurocircuitry and the perception of pain.
1: Well, I have a question for you, Dr. Morrison, that I think, Please. you know, and I think that these interdisciplinary groups are are important and they're critical to good patient care, but I think one of the challenges is that, you know, on the surgical side of things, I think there's not really an endpoint. I think I see this, uh, you know, oftentimes where there can be times when patients get interventions or surgical procedures and that being an endpoint or saying, well, there's quote unquote, for example, nothing else that can be done sometimes ends up being a matter of opinion. And I think when some other group then steps in to evaluate that patient in terms of what is the next best step, uh, without maybe having a fresh set of eyes, understand what has been done or what can be done on the surgical side of things. Um, I think it's a challenging thing to do. Very simple example, we would talk about spinal cord stimulation, which is you know, very, very common procedure. And anybody who does this work would say, more often than not, patients come in and say that, well, I had the trial work great, put the permanent in, uh, didn't work, and then it comes here you into separate interdisciplinary group when the pro potentially the solution is that the simulator is migrated or there's some you know uh, it's you know they're told by the surgeon that well, uh, I put it in, it works fine, it's great, and somebody else looks at it and say, well, it's off by a level and a half. and this is such a common scenario um, that I wonder you know that uh, I think that at any step along the way, it probably is important to have some somebody who understands these surgeries involved in that evaluation. I don't know, Jeff. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I know you're getting at an important uh, point, which is that there's institutional bias and variation in how they're, in how chronic pain patients are treated, and there's uh, individual surgeon-based you know bias and variation in how chronic pain patients are treated. Not every opinion is uh, is consistent. So there's a lot of variability in how these patients are treated. Um, But I I do agree that um, at some point there, in very sophisticated programs, there is a relationship between the sort of chronic pain group, which often uh, does not include surgeons, and then surgeons themselves. And uh, I wonder, you know, how does it work at your institution or how involved are are you as a surgeon with these patients who are, you know, very chronically ill from pain?
1: So, uh, you know, I myself, uh, because um, as a functional and stereotactic neurosurgeon in our own subspecialty in neurosurgery, you know, pain tends to be something that we, uh, is part of our own uh, academic interests, I'm fairly involved. Now, um, through my career um, until very recently, um, you know, I mostly got involved with patients who have, you know, various forms of cancer pain. Now, that's very different from other forms of chronic pain, I think the issues are very different. The practical aspects of the care of those patients also is very different. Um, And so I think it, you know, depends on the underlying disease and or cause uh, or what we think is the cause of that pain in terms of who actually is best suited and who's, you know, sort of involved. Um, In my current practice, which is a new experience for me, a lot of pain is done by plastic surgery
0: uh,
1: and the group is actually excellent. And it's a new experience for me to be involved uh, in an, you know somewhat of an interdisciplinary way uh, to see their approaches, how they examine patients, and how they develop a differential diagnosis and treatment plan, which is different. They treat different diseases uh, than we than we treat as neurosurgeons and our classic sort of what we learn in our training programs, um, I think is very different actually.
0: yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I've never heard of plastic surgeons like taking the lead on pain surgery. Um, but that's an interesting, so that just, uh, highlights the variability, uh, among institutions, right, right there. Um, and so, uh, it kind of segues into this, uh, idea about chronic pain becoming the disease itself, right? Chronic Pain, pain is an acute symptom. We try to treat the symptom, but eventually sometimes there's so much associated with the pain, like um, affective reliance, uh, and uh, and it becomes a disease itself. A controversial so sort of pathomechanistic description might be uh, nociplasty, right? Nociplastic effects of the brain. I wonder uh, what are your opinions, Dr. Morrison, we'll start with you on, on your opinions of chronic pain becoming a behavior and a diagnosis in and of itself, and how do you address that as an entity?
2: Absolutely. So in our program, we've really placed a great deal of emphasis on pain neuroscience education, and there's research um, that suggests that when we provide this education to patients about the brain changes that occur in the context of chronic pain and how those are related to cognitive, behavioral, and affective responses that then further um, amplify pain neurocircuitry, that providing patients with that information actually helps them to have a better understanding of why we really promote behavioral and cognitive changes Um, in order to not only enhance functioning in the context of of symptoms, but also in direct and indirect ways to really turn down the dial on the the amplified pain response. So um, uh, from a pain rehabilitation standpoint, we will often talk about pain behaviors as uh, defined as those behaviors that remind the individual or people around them about the presentation of their symptoms. So it could be anything from uh, rubbing bodily areas, um, uh, being overly guarded with certain bodily areas. It could also be internal uh, experiences like rumination about their pain and about their inability to cope. So really first providing that education and clarifying for patients, because oftentimes when they are referred to, um, to pain psychology services, the subtext of that is, well, the pain's in my head. Hmm. So really providing that education about pain neuroscience helps to clarify for patients, well, pain is in your brain, but let's talk about how that's different from pain being, quote unquote, in your head. And also clarifying for patients that when we're talking about pain, um, neuroscience, we're, not, we're we're not saying to patients that their pain experience is caused by psychiatric or psychological or psychosocial factors, but we're very explicit about how those factors absolutely amplify and can maintain the experience of pain. So in, in our program and in programs like ours, going back to what I was saying about pain behaviors, helping patients to recognize, okay, this is a pain behavior. These are the ways in which I can challenge these behaviors and me challenging these behaviors is going to enhance my functioning in. X number of X, Y, Z ways. So an example might be kinesiophobia. We see a lot of patients who are very fearful of movement, physical activity. In the short term, that can be very appropriate. Uh, But in the longer term, what we see is that becomes associated not only with physical deconditioning, but with the tendency to catastrophize and be anxious and fearful of any form of movement. So what we will do in our program is help individuals to identify, well, one, what are those real functional challenges that patients do have? And then two, what is an exercise regimen or a plan for movement that is safe, but also helps to challenge them to enhance their physical abilities above and beyond where they've been? So, you know, that's a very... Specific way of how we're helping patients to challenge those pain behaviors, and then being able to say, "Oh, I can go for that walk. I can, you know, do that yoga pose. I can engage in these activities." And as I'm doing this, these are um, the ways in which those pain signals are are um, diminished as a result. Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Uh, I I have a question. You know, uh, you know the kinds of things that you're describing, you know, Dr. Morrison require an, you know, extensive amount of commitment, you know, from the patient, you know, their, you know, their social support system and actually expertise on your end, right? So you're at Mayo Clinic, you have uh, resources that I would say many other places don't have. And if we talk about pain as an epidemic, uh, you know, either in the country or in a region or around the world, I'd say, as a majority of these patients, the people who have these issues and need the treatments, actually exist outside institutions like yours, like Jeffs, like mine. And how do you take a patient uh, who needs that kind of intensive care there and um, and, you know, get them to commit to it? Because as we know, most of these patients who have pain, and even when they have surgical pain. It's very rare that a 30-minute procedure is fixing years of underlying pain disorder. It has to be part of the process. And in this current culture and world that we live in, where everything happens at the touch of a button, right? You hit the button, and the thing is on your doorstep. And if it's not on your doorstep in less than 12 hours, you have road rage, and you are like, oh, my God, the thing is late. So how do you... How do you then take these you know, techniques, maneuvers, these long-term kinds of therapies and get patients, families to engage in what is actually a long-term investment?
2: Dr. Danish, I 100% agree with you. It really speaks to the health inequities that we see, right? Uh, that there are many patients who will never have access to tertiary level pain rehabilitation. Um, there is a real initiative um, um, focused on the stepped, stepped model of care for pain management that in part looks at, well, how do we take components of behavioral chronic pain management but introduce them at earlier stages in the, um, in the healthcare system to really provide access to a broader scope of patients. So we know that um, the majority of individuals with chronic pain will be cared for at the primary care level. What are the components of rehabilitative care that we can introduce into the primary care level to um, enhance um, patients' functioning at that level, but also to minimize the human suffering? So the the Institute of Medicine estimates that the annual cost for chronic pain uh, on society is $625 billion a year in healthcare utilization and lost productivity. And that doesn't even account for just the amount of human suffering that goes along with that, right? So when we add health inequities to that, right? And we know, uh, for example, individuals who are racial minorities, uh, individuals who live in rural areas, who are underinsured, uh, patients who identify as uh, sex and gender diverse, um, they have limited access to to good quality pain care, whether it's acute or chronic pain. Um, one of one of the avenues that um, has gained some some traction in terms of increasing access is, Uh, digital platforms. So how can we, um, for example, introduce patients to um, these rehabilitation concepts using an app so that they don't necessarily have to have access to uh, a clinic or tertiary level care, but they can still get access to, to the concepts that can help to enhance their functioning. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is the the sole answer in and of itself, because we know that digital health comes with its own set of, um, of highlighting um, uh, inequities or disparities, but I think it's, it's certainly a, a start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, Go ahead, Dr. Lynch.
1: No, I just, I think that these are, you know, it's one thing you know, talk about the biology and the perception of pain. And, you know, there's so many pain syndromes that you just clearly don't understand. From you know, uh, you know where they're generated, how they're generated. There's so many factors involved in this, and I, you know, sort of take these opportunities where we're having these discussions, you know, um, to sort of come back to things that are very basic in our world in neurosurgery, right? So you know, we academically talk about you know things that are esoteric. The DBS for pain is very esoteric. These cranial Neuralgias are, you know, a minor part of, say, the pain when you think about the common pain syndromes. They say, well, what's what's the most common adult pain syndrome that we come across, at least in our field on the adult side? Back pain, just for example, right? Back pain. Now, not, not, you know, and that's part of the reason why people actually go into pediatric neurosurgery. You go into (laughs) pediatric neurosurgery because you say, I want to avoid people with back pain because That's kids right. don't get it, right? That's, That's it's right. one of the biggest reasons you go into peds. <sighs> now, but if you look at the world of back pain and the adult world of back pain and the majority of how these patients are treated, what, what, what happens to them? They have back pain, they see their primary care doc. Their primary care doc, gets an MRI to back. MRI the back has a disc bulge. Now they all see a neurosurgeon who says, well, you don't need a neurosurgeon. Then they go off to a pain doctor Either physiatrists or pain anesthesiologists. And I'm not talking about tertiary care centers that work in interdisciplinary groups. I'm talking about the 80 to 90% of people who are out there in the community who don't have that setup. Then what does the pain anesthesiologist or physiatrist do? Well, they're going to get three epidurals. Why? Because that's what insurance covers. Nice. It's not necessarily goal directed. And then they get however many injection interventions insurance will cover. And then what happens? The pain doc or the physiatrist says, well, there's nothing I can do. You need to see a surgeon. And then you see a surgeon who, depending on their own threshold for intervention, will say, well, oh, yeah, you have a disc bulger. You need a discectomy. Then they do a discectomy. doesn't work. Patient still has back pain. Then the surgeon says, well, ah, it's because it's touching on your nerve a little bit. What happens? Patient gets a fusion. Then that doesn't work. So you say, well, the level above now, it doesn't look good. Then the patient gets another level fused. That doesn't work. Now the patient has failed back syndrome. And then what happens? You say, well, I'm going to put a spinal cord stimulator in. Puts a trial in. Trial in goes for 48 hours sometimes in the community. I see it all the time. Oh, it worked great. Of course it worked great because the patients are desperate. They have nothing else. To have. They're told that this is your last effort. So for 48 hours, they have the wires in the back. They're like, oh my God, I feel great. Then they get a permanent stimulator. And then it doesn't work. And then they come see you. And probably potentially for many of these patients, the source is not having understood what the etiology of the pain is to begin with. And, And so forgive me if I went off script here, but this is the common problem in adult back pain. And it's actually not, I think it's so far removed from pain interventions in the brain itself. It's actually, you have to come We have to somehow move the needle back to the left to come back to the basics to say, hey, how do we get practitioners to think about this differently? How do we get practitioners to understand that getting to the bottom of understanding why the pain is occurring um, will prevent that situation?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the collaborative approach is definitely the most important. And as uh, Dr. Morrison described, breaking down barriers so that more people can uh, access uh, a comprehensive multidisciplinary group earlier. Um, But uh, one of the underlying issues I think will always be there's no understanding of where the primary pain generator is in many cases. And I mean, you're describing a complicated Uh, pain syndrome of back pain where there's nociceptive and probably neuropathic uh, contributors then understanding and diagnosing the primary pain generator is extremely difficult Uh, and then also there's no biomarker of pain right because it's individualized it's an individual's experience. Uh, And so these things make it extremely difficult to make the correct unifying diagnosis and lead to treatment. So I I totally agree that, um, you know, lowering barriers uh, for everyone uh, and uh, and starting uh, back towards the left, as you said, I don't know why the left and not the right, but the left (laughs) where there's uh, more access to comprehensive care is key. But I want to get to um, the catastrophizing uh, and uh, you know, patients who are catastrophizing generally have uh, that. That's the manifestation of the most severe. That's the most severe manis- manifestation of the pain syndrome. And those patients generally do see surgeons. We get we get consulted on them all the time. And maybe the underlying condition is cancer. Maybe the underlying condition is something else. But these are neurosurgical patients in many cases. And I want to talk a little bit about psychosurgery, which has a, a storied and dark past, of course. But um, there are some uh, uh, surgeries that have survived the ages. And one is cingulotomy. Uh, and you've uh, you've performed uh, this in using laser ablation uh, as you're uh, probably a world expert on uh, laser ablation uh, for all uses. Can you talk a little bit about like how you chose to use uh, the laser for this particular indication and how you, you know, indicate patients for it?
1: Sure. So I think that uh, the uh, singulotomy has been around for a very long time, right? I mean, that, I think there's no, there's no question there. And I don't think that the use of laser, the use of a different technology changes, you know, what patients may be right for it and how patients are going to do for it. I'll be quite honest with you that, you know, when I was uh, sort of starting out, you know, with laser therapy, I'd done a fair amount, you know, for other things. Uh, and then as I saw patients who might potentially um, benefit from that procedure, and I'm just going to be honest, we just didn't have an RF box. We didn't have an RF box, but I had a laser. Laser is a very expensive way to do it, but it was easy for me to use that technique and technology for that procedure purely out of circumstance. Mm-hmm. Now, then what, having done it that way, I'd say that the advantages uh, um, in using that technology were that one, I felt that you could absolutely get a better, bigger ablation than RF. And now, who nobody knows if a bigger ablation is better. <laughs> That's right? what I was going to ask so, you. So, so, like, let me, yeah, so, let me just, let me just downside. say that I'm already I'm already <laughs> aware that nobody knows, but we sometimes feel that a bigger ablation is better. Uh, but two is that uh, you could watch. You can watch the ablation. You can watch it as it happens. And I think that what was useful for me in that scenario is that I was able to, you know, be really I felt more exact about what I was blading, preventing ablation injury to the corpus callosum, especially when you're doing a bilateral, you know, procedure. I felt much more control, you know, using image guidance and the laser rather than doing it with RF.
0: Got it. I guess in the last um, few minutes, I really want to um, challenge or ask you both, like, how do you think that we can use each other's services better? Like, um, Dr. Morrison, how do you feel like you might liaise better with neurosurgery for these patients who have, you know, chronic pain that doesn't respond and might need some, you know, functional neurosurgery that affects their perception of pain, via neuromodulation, which we haven't talked about, or true psychosurgery in the ablative uh, form. And Dr. Danish, same question. How do you feel like we might better integrate our pain patients or even our services with the the comprehensive groups? And Dr. Morrison, why don't you answer first?
2: Sure, happy to. Uh, You know, I would say certainly, um, you know, in the spirit of, of chronic pain being a biopsychosocial experience to the extent that the behavioral interventions can be introduced earlier on, even in patients who are excellent candidates for surgery, really underlining uh, here the behavioral and cognitive changes that will help to enhance your post-surgical outcomes, so that patients are appreciating that these behavioral approaches are also um, necessary to to enhance outcomes and improve functioning. And you had mentioned um, pain catastrophizing. Um, And we really see that in the literature as a mechanism for um, understanding who tends to do well, Um, And be successful over time. So the the great news about the tendency to catastrophize is it's modifiable. So we, you know, we can help an individual to reduce their tendency to catastrophize about their pain and coping through cognitive behavioral strategies. So that's what I would say earlier introduction of, of the role of behavioral strategies for these patients.
0: Okay. Dr. Danish, same question. How do you feel like we might better integrate with um, you know, the comprehensive chronic pain groups? Look,
1: I mean, there, I think there's no question that getting, you know, multiple sets of eyes, different perspectives, interdisciplinary groups leads to better management. Quite frankly, I think this has to come down and you know, this is gonna come down, I think, to the insurance companies. Hmm. Here's what happens yes. today, right? So in the community, or, or everywhere, forget community, it doesn't matter where, right? You see a patient, and I'm gonna take it back to the example that's come up a couple of times in this discussion. Patient gets finishes six weeks of physical therapy, gets three injections, has some radiologists say there's moderate changes, there you go, you're good. You've actually fulfilled the criteria from the insurance company to get approval for lumbar fusion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we, the patients, practitioners will, Our natural tendency will take the path of least resistance, right? I think we have to get harder on those patients at the very beginning. I think that the criteria to approve the most common surgeries for pain are antiquated. And Mm -hmm. I think in today's age, we have better understanding uh, of pain syndromes, how to treat them, more tools in our hand, more subspecialists who are paying attention to this disease, you know, depending on its underlying source, I think all of those criteria need to be revamped. And until you tell a patient and or a practitioner that you're not getting paid, unless you do it this way, it's, you're not gonna modify to be, you're not gonna change how we're actually doing it.
2: That's very interesting. I agree with you and I'm, I'm loving what you're saying. Uh, my question for you is: um, When you consider the patients that you see um, as being uh, fair, good, excellent candidates for surgery, are there particular psychosocial factors or behavioral factors that that you see as indicating whether or not a patient would be a good candidate for for surgery, or it's maybe a, not so it's good?
1: A, it's a great question, you know. And in our own practice, you know, we re, we Genuinely, you know, have people meet with our neuropsychologists and our, you know, um, uh, therapists ahead of time to try to understand some things, these things. But the problem is that there's no, it's not a black or white scenario. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, if you have clear structural and radiographic pathology, then it's easy, right? It's when you don't have those, which is, you know, quite often, you know, the case. That this becomes very difficult. You say, well, you have patients, you don't have a great understanding of their disease process. You get caught up in your own emotional roller coaster of wanting to help somebody who is desperate for relief. Our job is to try to bring relief. And we want it, and and uh, and then you, you know, you have patients who feel like they've done everything. You as a practitioner feel like they've done everything, and you're sort of at the end of the line. And you say, Okay, well. I don't know what else to do but to try this. And that ultimately becomes a slippery slope. And we've all been there, myself included.
0: Yeah, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of uh, perception and how to change patients' perceptions. Um, but I want to thank both of you for participating in this uh, podcast. And we also want to thank all of our listeners and also the Congress of Neurological Surgeons and the North American Neuromodulation Society for this joint collaboration for innovative content. And Dr. Morrison and Dr. Danish, thank you for being so generous with your time. And thank you for your dedication and the impact your work has made in the field. And I hope you're able to join us again for the future webinar.